We're on now to episode number four of the podcast today, and I'm so excited about the audience that has been building. Uh, Adobe, you're now in the UK as we record this episode, but we have listeners from seven countries on three continents and from 22 different states in the United States. It's exciting to have that seven reach countries. begin to grow. Yeah, seven different countries on three continents. That's awesome. So for our friends in Lithuania, I, I don't know how you found out about our podcast, but, but we're happy to have you with us. We've also got listeners in the U.S., Nigeria, the U.K., Canada, the Netherlands, and Mexico. The Netherlands, Mexico. That's really exciting stuff, Carter. As we think about places, today's conversation uh, with Jenny Grouse uh, from the A.B. Grouse Band, and she was driving to a gig. The band is performing almost every night, it feels like. And she was driving to a gig and she pulled over on the side of the road where she had a good cell signal so that we could have our conversation. She ended up pulling over on a gravel road in the middle of Iowa. Uh, we'll put on our on Instagram and Twitter next week, we'll put up a picture of what her view looked like as we were having this conversation on a gravel road in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. Looking forward to seeing that. One of the things I love is music. And I'm really excited, Adobe, that today we get to have a conversation with a musician and before we get to our conversation with her, I'm curious what kind of music you like to listen to. You know, this is going to sound cliche, but I really do like an entire eclectic range of music. So I love a whole range of music. I love house music. I love garage. I love R&B, hip hop. My kids are between the ages of 21 and 13. So I'm listening to a lot of Afrobeat these days. So just eclectic collection of music. I love sound. I love sound that makes me move. Like you, I love all kinds of music. And so I'm excited to get to talk with Jenny today. Welcome to the Key and the Kite podcast. I'm Adobe Oniwinde. And as we record this episode, I'm in Surrey, England. Carter is in Denver, Colorado. Today, we have a fascinating conversation with Jenny Grouse. She's the lead singer and co-founder of the A.V. Grouse Band, the A.V. Grouse Band met at a blues jam on the banks of the Mississippi River. Their debut album hit number 10 on the Billboard Blues Album Chart. Their second album, Telltale Heart, will be released on September 24th. Jim Hines of Elmo Magazine says, A.V. Grouse Band is from the Quad Cities along the mighty Mississippi and brings as much power as any band along that waterway, Memphis and New Orleans included. The A.V. Grouse Band is Chris A.V., Brian West, Randy Leesman, Nick Vasquez, and with us today, their lead singer, Jenny Grouse. Jenny, thanks for joining us. I'm curious about how you describe the music the A.V. Grouse Band does. Casey Wozner, who produced your new album, described your music as rock and roll blues soul. How would you describe <laughs> it? Uh, I honestly, I have such a hard time with genres simply because I kind of feel like our music is in its most simplistic form, a mix of all of us that are a part of the band. So it includes blues and rock and country and roots and, you know, all of those things that influenced us. Uh, we definitely met at a blues jam. And so blues is a basis for what we do. We love the blues community and we definitely have a bluesier sound, but it's 
also very difficult to pigeonhole us as blues artists uh, because we may we definitely are not traditional blues artists and we would would never take that away from those that are because they <laughs> they do it right they do it well we would never do it that well so uh so we're kind of a honestly roots rock is one of those genres that kind of hits hits a lot of the the bases that we touch on what when you listen to music what kind of music do you listen to I know everything is such a cop-out answer, but it's true. So for instance, right now at our house, <laughs> you can find on our turntable, everything from the most recent sort of AAA Americana uh, music, everything from the sort of roots rock music of like Marcus King and uh, the blues guy, Chris Tone, uh, Kingfish Ingram, Roy Rogers and the Tumble and Tumbleweeds to operas, beautiful arias, um, Sophia von Otter, uh, who's from Scandinavia. I mean, we really, I think as a family, we have a pretty eclectic mix of music, musicals. We have lots of musicals that play at our house. <laughs> and my my husband's a huge Lead Betty, uh, Lead Belly fan. And so we, we have Lead Belly that plays a lot in our house. But also I have teenage daughters. So we listen to a lot of uh, Taylor Swift and Harry Styles and you know, some of the cool stuff that that maybe I wouldn't have picked myself. <laughs> Harry, Harry Styles is coming to Denver and it's, you know, that date's blocked on the calendar for my daughter because <laughs> that's, for real. she's going to be there no matter what. This is a must. I will tell you, if Harry Styles was coming our way, my husband would be going too. He's now a fan. <laughs> is that right? There you go. Oh, yeah. It's very funny. I have to say uh, music has been such a good connection between our children, we have three daughters and my husband and I, it's such a way to bring us all together. My husband and I ran a radio station together um, for years and it was a triple A station, which is adult album alternative. And it means that we played everything from kind of that country stuff like Chris Stapleton to Arctic Monkeys to like Tedeschi Trucks Band. It was very eclectic and that definitely suited our tastes and our kids grew up listening to that but they have their own more pop based interests as well. And we are definitely not snobs about it. We love hearing from them. It's just not something we came about naturally. And so them bringing it to us helped us open our eyes up to some of the cool stuff that's out there too. It's, I think music's a great way to communicate regardless of generation. I'm really curious about the idea of music as a way for your family to connect. I, it, it, music becomes such an emotional thing in our life. I was at, oh, yeah. uh, probably, I don't know, 20 years ago now, I had the opportunity to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, and was overwhelmed by just the constant series of memories and emotions that yes. came flooding back as I listened to different songs going through the museum. Yes, it's so true. Um, the Stax Museum did that for me in Memphis. It was that same kind of, uh, that realization of how much, Music really is that it's that corny line, the soundtrack to our life, right? It's yeah. the it's the if we were to sort of pare down those moments in our lives that seem sort of cinematic, they often had music involved. I have videos on my phone that I watch when I'm feeling a little homesick or lonely. And it's my daughters and I, we push the kitchen table <laughs> over by the refrigerator and we've got Alexa 
jamming out like ABBA, right? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're just, we're just dancing. We're not, we're silly. And I, you know, ABBA was a, even a, a little before my sort of real interest in music, but I knew ABBA very well. And my kids know all the words to ABBA, which I think is so, so it transcends not only generations, um, but it also in a family, but it also actually transcends decades <laughs> from when yeah. it, I mean, the fact that my daughter, Sophie, who's 19 can sing every word to like Chiquitita <laughs> <laughs> makes me laugh. Like, how do you know these songs? But yeah, she, she knows them all. You've, you've been involved with music in one way or another, you know, running the radio station or as a performer for about your whole life, I think. Do you, was there a moment where you said, I need to be engaged with music some way in my life? I can actually tell that, tell you that there are three major moments. So one is kindergarten. <laughs> kindergarten, we uh, had to fill out a sheet and my, my husband framed this for me. I have it at home. It was those old, like, triple copy purple things that your teacher would bring to you and you have to yeah so i had to fill it out and it says my name is jenny i am you know six or five years old i like the color red i have one sister like i didn't even have my brother then i have one sister when i grow up i want to sing and it's interesting that i said that at five or six years old because as an oldest child, I always felt like singing was not a responsible sort of oldest child endeavor. So I always did it. I was always in music, but it wasn't the thing that I thought could be a career. So flash forward to when I go to college, gosh, I would have loved the idea of being a musician and going after it. But I think both fear and also the idea of responsibility took over and and I went to college and did something else. Moved out to LA and my husband and I were out there and I would sing backup for this guy, Joey Deluxe, at the cinema bar in, uh, in LA on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday nights, I can't remember. And for me, it was the coolest experience because I could sing, but I still had a day job. I was still responsible. My parents could be proud of me. And uh, flash forward to having a child then quickly having a second child my first child was born right after 9-11 or right before excuse me five days before so we had her birth 9-11 and then six months later I was pregnant with the second one and then we moved back, back to Iowa and got pregnant right away with the third one and there was this moment when I was transitioning jobs transitioning states had three children under the age of four and I'll be honest I had an intense breakdown, like emotional, mental, all of it. I, I really started getting to a place where I thought the world and my children would be better if I weren't here because I was hurting so much and I was tired and I was worn out. And I, so it was a very deep depression. So I eventually had a kind of a meltdown in the parking lot where at the radio station and my husband called my folks and and uh, and I called the doctor right away and started therapy that took me a good year and a half to two years to kind of get out of that depression. But <laughs> the therapist noticed I kept talking about music. And this is why I bring it up, because I think I had pushed it down so much in my adult life 
thinking that it wasn't responsible, but not realizing how much it meant to my like soul (laughs) that, um, that when I went to therapy, he finally one day said, I am going to write you a prescription. And that is, I want you to go write a song. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't write what I think because people will judge it. He was like, Nope, I want you to, I want you to write a song. This I'm the doctor. This is the order. (laughs) So he did it. And that's how I ended up writing my first EP, Jenny Grouse Scenic Route. And it was, I think five or seven songs. I can't remember now. And they were all songs that were written because I was in therapy and was being encouraged to write, to get back to music. And um, that was a major moment, Carter, in my life, because all of a sudden music was back as a real part. I still had a day job, but I got to sing my songs for people and write about them, which was even more than I had expected because before I had been a performer of music, but not a writer of it. So that's the second major moment. And the third major moment was honestly (laughs) when I went to that blues jam in the quad cities and met two of the guys that are now in my band. And I honestly, I think people think I'm lying, but it's not. I had this moment as we were doing a song together and I was like, yep, this is it. I know, I know my gut is right. I know that this is what I'm supposed to do right now. This is it. And I bugged them for seven and a half months before I could get Chris to try doing a show with me. And we did it. And then we're now we're a band. So that's amazing. And I, I, I think about, we've watched our kids, our kids are about the same age. We watched our kids grow up online together on social media, but yes, your CD scenic, the scenic route, uh, I didn't know the backstory behind it. It's amazing to hear that backstory. That's a CD that I bought as soon as you made it available online. <laughs> and my daughter doesn't remember this, but I was, we were driving down the road and she maybe was in kindergarten or something. And all of a sudden, I hear her belting out the lyrics to Route 5, Gergeson Drive, which is the first song oh, in the yeah. CD, right? And it was so much fun to just see that connection. But but what an amazing story of music, really. When we talk about music being emotional, I get emotional listening to you tell that story. And I'm going to listen to that CD later today with a completely different perspective. Well, and I'll be honest, it was really... Uh, mental health is something that it's really difficult to talk about. and it was definitely something I wasn't prepared to talk about then. I mean, I was mortified if people from my town saw me at the doctor. It was, I'm not mortified about it now. In fact, I'm a huge advocate of mental health help and, uh, and, and resources. And I think we need more, far more than we have now. But at the time I was just, you know, I think, a lot of us have this personality where we 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 want to be reliable. We want to be the person that people can feel is strong and solid. And so when we start to feel like we're letting them down because we feel it internally, it really can create this amazing cycle of beating yourself up, which doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't boost you. It actually makes you feel worse. And then the chemicals get involved in your brain and you just start going to a really dark place. And so it's horrible because at that time when I wrote that EP, which is a very generally a very positive EP, um, I would drive to work every day thinking, you know, if I just drove off the road, if I just 
if it was an accident, then no one would feel bad. I thought this every day for like, wow. I mean, a good nine to 10 months. And to know now that now that I'm not in that place, it's difficult for me to think that 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 I thought that was a a valid response to how I was feeling. But at the time, it seemed absolutely logical. (laughs) At the time where I was, it seemed right and it seemed helpful, but it wasn't. And so that album was interesting because I didn't write those feelings in that album. I wasn't at a place where I could actually write super honest feelings. So I started learning how to tell stories, partly based in truth, right? But also... You know, there's a there's a song on there that has this um, uh, it's called Unresolved and it's not based in reality. It's nothing that happened. My my mom actually got very nervous. She said, are you and your husband OK? I said, yes. <laughs> but what was interesting is I had those chords and the chords were how I felt in yeah. my heart, like that, that very minor, sad feeling. Yeah. But I couldn't write about that. So I made up a story to go with it. <laughs> Well, we're going to just feeling that way. I I think it's so important to, and and you and I have had conversations about mental health issues, you know, with our families. And I think it's really important to knock down some of those barriers to talking about mental health because so many people go through mental health issues. I think we all do, to be honest. I I think everyone does at some point in their life. And I'm going to do my best to make sure we talk about some of that on the podcast moving forward. I just think it's important to do. Well, you know, it's interesting on the album that A.V. Grouse Band came out with last year called The Devil May Care. There's a track on it that's called Long Road, and that is also about mental health issues. And it was because my daughter, my oldest daughter, who has given me permission, she's such a brave, wonderful kid, but she was really struggling with mental health issues. And we were in Memphis at the International Blues Challenge, and we made it all the way to this to the semifinals and then I got excited I thought oh maybe we'll make it to the finals and we didn't and it was amazing how much that disappointment hurt me because I got excited like I didn't keep my I was trying to keep my my excitement down to sort of like lower those expectations but when we got further and further I got really excited and then when we didn't get it I really dropped and so here I am in Memphis at the same time I get a text from my husband that my daughter is really in the depths of depression at the age of like, you know, 16. And I also get a text within an hour that a friend of mine had been diagnosed with cancer. And I just thought, wow, here I am crying about whether or not I made it to a music final competition and there's real life going on. So I wrote this song called Long Road because it really was about these moments when I, even when I used to drive on that road and think, if I just drove off this road right now, things would be better for everybody, including myself. But that's why the the vision of Long Road came up in that album. They do recycle back some of those thoughts because the song is, it's a long, long road, you know, but it's about being there together for each other and remembering that where you are right now isn't necessarily where you're going to be in the future. We're moving down this path. So give yourself a little grace (laughs) and a little understanding and a little bit of love. Like you might not be feeling great right now, but there are other days ahead. That's the hope, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious about songwriting. I I enjoy writing. I think I do a decent job of writing and I don't understand songwriting at all. What, what (laughs) makes a good song? 
Oh, that is so open to interpretation. I mean, even even to the extent that none of us across the globe would be able to agree on all the songs that we think are good songs, right? Sure. So, so there are some people that are very drawn by the the sound. So some people are very drawn by that very moody, melancholy sound that makes them feel hugged and warm. There are other people that don't like that feeling. It actually makes them feel sad and they want a beat, right? They want something that makes them smile and move. And that doesn't mean either one of those kinds of songs are better or worse. They're just different. It's very subjective. When it comes to lyric writing, that's something I love. I love being able to say things and say them in a way that people can interpret based on their own life and not try to spoon feed. This is what you have to think about this, but it can be taken at a very base level or it can be taken at a maybe more metaphorical level. But I love that, that challenge. And I'm, and I don't think I'm, where I should be as a, as a songwriter, I think there's always, there's always growth ahead, but I do think that one of the key things for me that makes a great song is relatability. Like if you can touch on something that makes another person lyrically say, Oh my gosh, I understand. That's me. Then you've done something I think pretty special. Yeah. As you know, I'm a huge fan of R.E.M. And, and Peter Buck, the guitar player for R.E.M., has said in multiple interviews that uh, when asked, you know, what does a specific lyric mean to him? He says, I'm not going to answer that question because there are people all over the world who have interpreted that in however they've interpreted it. And I don't want <laughs> I don't want to step on that. I want people to have that relationship with my music and let them have that. And I feel and he says he feels like if he started saying, well, I think the music means X, he feels like he'd be influencing how people think about the songs. I think songwriting is such an interesting craft. It's so true. And I'll be honest, the guys in the band, you know, I'm a chatter. I love to talk. I love to communicate. I love hearing people's impressions and also giving mine. But they've taught me that sometimes not telling is better, just like Peter Buck says. But it is funny because I also am a woman raised in the Midwest, who is an oldest child, who's very concerned about what, even if I don't want to be Carter, I'm being honest. I am concerned about people's perception of me and my family. Right. Sure. So I love to write stories like a good novelist. Right. Sure. So I have a song on the last album called dirty little secret. <laughs> <laughs> and, and part of me Really. And the guys kept saying, don't tell people what it's about, but it sounds so nefarious, right? It's like this Jenny's clearly writing this because she's having an affair. And I, I live in a small town and I was like, no, no, no. The song is about my obsession with little Debbie Swiss rolls. <laughs> <laughs> so like, You're my dirty little secret. I like the way you roll. That's not a, that's not a, like a sexual thing. It's like about food. Cause I like food. <laughs> but, you know, 
people laugh about that when they hear it. And I'm not trying to take away their impression of the song, but I've actually found that people, when they hear what that song is about, connect because they realize I'm also just a silly person. Do you know what I mean? Like, but it could be just taken. Most people across the world that have heard it might just think that it's a, you know, a naughty song, but really it's just about the fact that I can't control my eating when it comes to some of those like really horrible desserts. Okay. Honestly, that's the story you do. You do that's it's okay to start, tell that story because it's so much fun. <laughs> it's a great song. I honestly, like everyone else in the world, didn't think it was about little Debbie Swiss rolls. Um, <laughs> Although now that I've started, I'll be honest, now that I've started telling that story in public, people have now started bringing boxes of Swiss rolls to shoes and I I'm telling you, I am literally not the person that should be eating boxes of Swiss rolls. I, when I was in Up With People, um, as a band member, I played trumpet in the band and we went to Boston because we got to go to Boston, the Berkeley School of Music. And that's when Bare Naked Ladies were just hitting in the U.S. They are, came down from Canada. They were just hitting. And if I had a million dollars, was out. And uh, they were playing at this tiny bar in Boston. And somebody got us in just the band. And it was such a cool experience. Cause I was only 18. I'd never even been in a bar without my parents, first of all. <laughs> and so it was so cool because we're in this tiny bar watching bare naked ladies who I know their songs because our Canadian friends have been playing their music during strike and set up the whole time, you know, for the whole year. And they start singing. If I had a million dollars. And when they say something about Kraft macaroni and cheese, this guy leans over to me and, uh, you know, probably 22 year old, but he seemed like a grown man, you know, <laughs> and I, he leaned over and he handed me a box of macaroni and cheese. And I was like, what is this for? And he goes, we're going to throw it on stage. <laughs> <laughs> As they said, craft macaroni and cheese, the guys in the band duck because everybody throws boxes of craft macaroni and cheese on stage. And I realized at the last show that someone brought little Debbie Swiss rolls that I realized I have created a monster. We are now going to get little Debbie Swiss rolls and uh, sent and thrown at us at every show. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So funny. Your new album's coming out on September 24th. It's called Telltale Heart. It's your yes. second album. The first album hit number 10 on the Billboard Blues chart. Really excited to get to listen. I've heard one song from the album already, which is fantastic. Really Thanks. excited to get to hear the whole album. Talk about the process of creating an album and what that's like. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because all those years that I worked in radio, I only got the end product, right? Yeah. So I didn't know all that went into it. Um, but for me, it is interesting to see it now from both perspectives because what I didn't realize is how much work <laughs> goes into making that one album and how much money goes into making that one album. Um, we are independent artists. We have not chosen to work with a label at this point. I'm certain we will at some time, but right now we just, we're still trying to find out who we are as a band. And so having that creative control is important. So we fund everything ourselves. So the first thing that I realize is that you have to be prepared to figure out where that money's coming from. And then the process of making it, you don't want to get the financial part mixed in with the creative part because that will mess you up. Yeah. <laughs> so you really have to focus on writing, 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 
you know, and everybody talks about write way more songs than you'll ever need for an album. But I am definitely a goal oriented person. I like to know how many songs do we want on the album? How many, okay, you know, I might write some extra songs, but then we figure out which ones make the best album and then we work from there. So we went down this time and went down to Nashville to work with Casey Wozner. He's got great accolades behind him. I mean, he's a Grammy winner. And we were interested to see what would happen. The first album we recorded in Iowa. So Catamount Studios is an amazing place. And we love Travis at Catamount. That I would encourage anybody to go record an album there. People fly in from other places to record albums there. But here's what I found. As much as I want to record in Iowa and support Iowa, I still think like a mom <laughs> when I'm in Iowa. So I think of my household and I think of all the things I need to get done. When we go down, to, when we went down to Nashville, I was so far away from home that you, you can't help but focus on the work at hand. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. I think people thought it was a little strange. Now, my sister lives in Nashville, so it was also nice. Like I got to see my sister and stay with her for three weeks and um, she had a baby during the pandemic. So I got to hang out with my niece, which is just awesome. And my sister's boyfriend, um, who used to be our bass player for a little while. So we know him really well. But it's just being away. Maybe that sense of the exotic, that something is different, makes your brain free up to experience those creative, exciting daily moments. Sure. Um, and I think that's important when you're putting an album together, but that's sort of the esoteric stuff, right? Like the more detailed stuff is you have to have money in place. You have to know what you want to put on an album. And honestly, if you're a band these days, you got to be prepared for how you want to play before you get in the studio, because you can't afford to sit there and do like what the stones used to do. Right. And <laughs> like sit there for a month and just practice like, well, let's try writing one right now. Like, yeah. We don't have that kind of money. We got to be ready when we get there. It was an exciting process. And I will tell you having a producer or originally we were kind of hiring him as a sound engineer, but we ended up calling him a producer because although he didn't write any of the songs on our album, which producers a lot of times do these days. We wrote all the songs, but when we got there, he heard things in a couple of them that we hadn't heard. And Carter, that's exactly what we needed is sometimes you get too close to your own stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it was nice to have him. Well, in fact, the song Telltale Heart, which is the title track, when you listen to it, you'll notice it starts very quiet and then goes into this really big just moment right away at the beginning. You don't expect it. And that's because we were rehearsing that part of the song, which was the end. And he was doing something in the studio and he stopped us and he said, whoa, 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 what was that? And we said, oh, we're just rehearsing the end of this song before we record it. He said, no, no, that's not the end. That's the beginning. And we said, what? He said, it's not the end. It's the beginning. I said, no, 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 it's the end. He said, nope, it's the beginning. <laughs> and we, I have to be honest, I felt like he was telling me my baby was ugly. Like I got really, yeah. I got really emotionally upset. Like, I, <laughs> and it was because I was like, no, 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 you're changing my song. And he said, just hear me. Just, can we just record it? And I kind of gave up and I went and pouted and I, <laughs> and we recorded it. Uh, and I'm telling you, Cardi, Carter, he was 100% correct. That gave it the start. It's the same song. 
he just pulled something from the end, gave it a more grandiose beginning, a more dramatic beginning. And then we went right back into the song the way it is. And he wasn't wrong, but he could see it and we couldn't. And that was cool. I'm always fascinated to hear the stories of the of the people who work in studios producing records and how they can hear a song and think about it differently and rearrange yeah. it and turn yeah. it into something great. That's a skill that I think is really fascinating. It is a cool skill. And to be honest, I think it takes someone who has a musical understanding, but it also helps that they've just not been there practicing with us because we might be so in love with a song and something's not hitting, but we don't notice it. And then again, I'll be honest. There's one song on the album um, that Casey kept saying, I just, I think we should, you know, it should, I'm not feeling it. I'm not getting it. And Chris, our lead, Chris Avey, our lead guitarist and also vocalist with me was adamant that this is how the song is. So we first went about trying to change it. It's a song called hanging around. And we first went about changing it. And none of us, it was like, we, that was the song we were most excited about. And by the time we got through that first day, we hated it. It put the first day of recording at a halt. And we all kind of went back exhausted that night. Like, ugh, maybe this song isn't good. And then the next day, Chris just, he's more vocal than I am. And he just said, no, we're not changing it. Let's go back. We're going to record it the way that we wrote it. And that's what, that's what it's going to be. So we did it. And I have to tell you, we just had a reviewer at the Roots Music Report which is great, reviewed the song. And in the email that he sent to our publicist, he said, by the way, hanging around, I think might be my favorite song of the whole year. (laughs) (laughs) So you also, as an artist, have to be prepared to fight when you, when you feel strongly about something. So it's, it's a balance, right? It's like being in a, it's like being in a relationship, a marriage, right? You have to know sometimes we have to, come together in a compromise. Sometimes I have to listen to you and sometimes you have to listen to me. <laughs> it's the, it's kind of the story of where we started because music creates relationships, right? In our brain and, and, and between people and, and talking about the relationships it's created with your daughters and, and your husband. Yeah. I'm curious about your relationship with your fans and what mm-hmm. fandom means to you, because you're clearly a fan of other musicians, you're fans of other, other people, and you have a lot of fans. And my daughter and I had a chance to see you perform uh, a few weeks ago. You have fans who are coming to multiple shows and following you around. And I'm curious what you think about the idea of being a fan and having fans. Yeah, it's a fair question. Well, first of all, I'm a huge fan girl of a lot of musicians. I'll be honest. I, got to do an interview like we're doing now back what I used to, when I ran the radio station, I had a program for about 12 years that was called artist direct. And every Friday morning I got to interview different artists. So my most favorite one, well, two of them was one was Roseanne cash. And cause we talked about songwriting. Um, you can actually find that on YouTube. If anyone wants to check it out, it was uh, FM 100.5 Roseanne cash um, artist direct. But the other was Jason Isbell. And I am a huge Jason Isbell fan because of what he is as a lyricist. He's one of the greatest writers, lyricists of our time. I told him before I started interviewing him, I said, I just want you to know I'm a huge fan. If I get goofy, it's not because I'm an idiot. It's because I'm really excited to be talking with you. (laughs) And And I'll be honest, when I finished the interview, I hung up the phone 
And I stepped back into the control room and I sobbed, literally sobbed because I was so happy with the way that I found him to be. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Like he was exactly what I hoped he didn't. He actually just enhanced my appreciation for him because he's real. He's honest. He talks about addiction. He talks about depression. He talks about renewal. He talks about, you know, his family. He, he's he's a realist about life being messed up, but still being able to love and appreciate those around you, even though we're not perfect. Big fan of that. <laughs> like, And so I was so relieved. And I think I think of that moment sometimes when people are giddy and excited with us because as much as that Midwestern Norwegian part of me doesn't really like the idea of anyone being held up over anybody else. I also am learning very clearly that we have a responsibility. Well, and I find it to be a a wonderful responsibility to be there to a certain extent for our fans. So during the pandemic, we did two shows a week online and we had people that joined us from all across across the globe. And at first I felt a little embarrassed because we weren't doing, they weren't professional. We didn't practice. We just sat down and goofed around. But people were so needing that. We were too. But I found out from like letters like literal letters. People wrote me letters, actual letters, which never happens. Actual letters, emails, messages to the Facebook page, to the Instagram page over and over again, telling us that they wouldn't be getting through the pandemic if it weren't for those shows. And I realized it's not just about the songs. It is about the songs. That's what brings us together. But the fact that I think people feel and rightly so that we are grateful for them, that they're a part of our, they're a part of something. Don't we all want to be a part of something to feel included? So I think they realize how important they are to us and they feel special and it becomes this um, community. So I, sometimes I hate the word fans. We started saying our friends, but then some people felt like that was a little trite and I get it. Like we don't all know each other really super well. But I am I want to know their names and I want to know about their families and I want to know if they're struggling, if there's something we can help with. You know, we can't be best friends with every fan we have, but I think they all know that we are very aware that we wouldn't be where we are without them and that we're actually interested in what they have going on. I just got an email the um, two nights ago from a woman who apologized that she and her husband haven't been out to see our shows because he's going through cancer treatments. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, first of all, you don't owe us an apology. And also, can you keep us updated? How are things going? Because music's important, but we all have life to live. And I think um, the way that we interact with each other on a daily basis as musicians, as fans, as bankers, as podcast hosts, right? The way that we interact with each other is probably what's most important in this world. So I hope someone likes our music, but more than that, I hope someone that comes to our music realizes that they are welcome and we're so glad they're there. 
Well, I am grateful that you did those shows during the pandemic because I was one of those people tuning in. And I'm really excited about your new album, Telltale Heart, coming out on September 24th. Uh, and we got to let people know you can pre-order it now on Bandcamp. Uh, so yeah. if you go to Bandcamp, they just go to our website. Go to our website. That's the easiest. It'll link right to it. Awesome. Yep. Go to avgrousband.com uh, is the website. Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And honestly, Carter, thank you. I'm really excited about what you're doing, and I think the fact that I've known you since I was. 17, I think, is <laughs> such a remarkable thing for me to see all of the great things you're doing, to see your kids, your family, and the fact that you're bringing people together with this kind of a podcast. So I'm proud of you, and I'm really excited to listen to all of your upcoming shows. So thank you for having me. First of all, Carter, I have to tell you that this interview affected me in more ways than I imagined. I mean, it had me crying, laughing and saying yes, yes, on so many levels. I was expecting a conversation about music and one of your favorite bands that I'd never heard of before you talked about them. But what a pleasant surprise, what a journey this interview was. The basis of the interaction, of course, is the red line that ran through the entire conversation being indeed music, but it was so much more than music. Um, Jenny talks a lot and tells a great story about passion, about love, about family, responsibility, mental health, humility, and how music is connected to all these things that are integral to, to who she is. Yeah, so. you and I were talking a little bit yesterday about this. And you said that that idea of responsibility in her career really connected with you. Yes, it did. As she grew up, um, she talked about the fact that her love for music never left her, yet she didn't pursue it the way she would have liked to, because being a Midwestern sort of first child, there was a sense of um, responsibility. She had to do the responsible thing. Or she had to do the sensible thing. And in her mind, music was not sensible. And I really resonated with that cartoon on quite a few levels. As you know, I'm Nigerian. I'm, I'm a first daughter. My name, Adobe, means the first daughter of the king. So the prefix of the name, Ad, the Ada, means first daughter. And as the first daughter in my culture, comes a lot of responsibility. So the first son and the first daughter are really important roles in a family. But being the first daughter is particularly heavy because after the mother, we are seen as the cradle of the family. So I too felt a deep sense of responsibility as the first daughter, and it shaped a lot of my decisions in life. I'm not because I'm a particularly traditional person. My parents worked and lived in the U.S. and were quite a modern sort of global family. But that sense of, of, of being Ada stayed with me. And because of that, there were things that I, you know, I did that maybe I wouldn't have done or paths that I didn't take that, I, that would have been my, my first choice to take. So when she told that story, it took me back and it, it really resonated with me and my circumstance. Does your name have weight for you? Is that something you feel? Yes, it does. And not because my parents put 
put that weight on me. So Adobe is the first daughter of the king. My grandmother, my mother's mother was an orig- was a real Adobe. And cousins and aunts and I inherited the name from her. She named all the firsts Adobe. So growing up in my household, it wasn't that certain things were expected of me. But I think culturally, you know, as Western as my parents were, were still Nigerian first. And just knowing the history and just knowing culturally, just the role of, of the first daughter um, sort of affected me in ways that were sort of almost innate. So it wasn't like anything was said to me or I didn't see anything that made me feel like I had to do this a certain way. But there is something about that name. And every Adobe I know and most Adas that I know are the same way, you know, we're gatherers. We are sort of the ones who who lead our siblings, even if our siblings are older, if there's an older brother, the Ada is always sort of the gatherer. I always felt like um, I had to be on my best behavior. I had to be the best student. I had to do the right things, even what I studied. I read, I'm a writer, I love to write. And when I was growing up, I, writing was something I always imagined that I would do, but my parents wanted me to study law. And so I, I went, I got my, my, my bachelor's in journalism, but I always knew that it wouldn't end there. I would have to go to law school. And that was the thing for my parents. Long story short, I, I didn't go to law school. I took the LSATs. I applied to one school I didn't get in. And that was the end of my obligatory <laughs> for my parents. Adobe, your name even played a role, that feeling of Ada even played a role in your decision to move back to Nigeria a few years ago, didn't it? Yes, it did. I was working and living in the Netherlands, um, but my assignment had come to an end and I had the option to either move back to Nigeria or find another job in Europe. And because I was, I'm US born, I could also have applied for jobs in the US in my company. But my father had become ill. And even though it was never even suggested, it was never implied, there was no expectation, something about my father being ill, my mother having taken care of him for two years, and me having the opportunity to go home, it just all came together. It just felt like the thing Ada should do. Right? And even when I came home, people would say, you've done Ada, you've, you've done what you were supposed to do, even though I didn't really feel, I didn't feel pressure to do it, but it, it, it's an innate thing. I came home and I, and I cared for my father, not because I felt obligated to do. He was an incredible human being, as you know, I've written lots about my father, but I was his carer till the end. He died in my arms. There is something about that. I always say it was the greatest honor of, of my life. In a cultural sense, I did Ada. That was what I was supposed to do. Jenny talked about that sense of responsibility becoming a burden and really coming to a moment in the parking lot of the radio station where she worked, where she had a breakdown and it just got really tough for her. That was one of the moments that I actually cried about. And again, the cultural thing, she talked about being from the Midwest and how, you know, such a breakdown and having a mental health, anything just was not, it wasn't something that people did, you know, and again, that responsibility that she carried with her, she didn't want to do anything that made the family not appear in in the best possible light. But she broke down and that breakdown, I, I, I feel, and she said that, um, saved her life. Um, she ended up having to go into therapy 
that wonderful moment talking about her music with the therapist and the therapist writing her a prescription. How lyrical. Wrote her a prescription to go and write a song. So she writes the song. She releases an EP called The Scenic Route. And she's performing kind of solo gigs around her hometown. And she meets along the banks of the Mississippi River at a blues jam. She meets Chris Avey and Brian West. And they start talking about forming a band. And she says that's the third moment where this path that she's been on really crystallized into a, a change in careers and in the beginning of the A.V. Grouse Band. Absolutely. You started off talking about the fact that Jenny was doing this from, you know, from a car on a journey. This entire conversation really was a journey. I felt like I was on starting when she was five or six and then the breakdown and then hooking up with these guys and she had to beg them. I think she said for seven months because she knew <laughs> When she she said she knew the moment when she, she she interacted with them or saw them play, she knew at that moment that this was what she was supposed to do. And she'd come full circle. That was how the band came to be. I'd like to get Chris Avey and Jenny in the room together to have this conversation because Chris says <laughs> Chris says that Jenny got up on stage and and was singing with them. And that that he turned and looked at Brian, both of them with their eyebrows raised, both thinking oh, we've got to do something with Jenny. <laughs> right, right. So I'd love to figure out kind of where in the mix that conversation actually happened exactly. and how it actually worked. Exactly. One of the things Jenny and I talk a lot about is mental health. We both had mental health issues in our family and I don't have it up in front of me. I'm going to, in just a minute, pull up the uh, 800 number for people in the United States who are having mental health issues that, that they can call for support because I don't want to get through this episode without talking about that number and giving that number out. We'll also make sure we include it in social media. But mental health support is so critical. And I, one of the things that I appreciate about Jenny is that she's been open and transparent about her story because I am a firm believer that we need to destigmatize mental health issues in the United States and around the world and and allow people to get the care that they, they need and deserve without feeling like they have to hide it. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked about the fact that you had listeners from Nigeria. That message is particularly important, you know, for the audience in Nigeria, because mental health is not something that we don't even admit. I mean, I think since COVID and maybe in the past couple of years, people are more aware of, of mental health issues. People are going to therapy. So it's almost like a, it's not an emerging issue here, but it's something that people are finally talking about and acknowledging. So yeah, for those people listening in Nigeria, it's great. I'm hoping that what they're getting out of this is how ordinary, remarkable people go through depression. And it's okay. It's an illness and it's not anything to be embarrassed about. Like Jenny had talked about earlier when she mentioned the fact that, you know, where she was from, it'd be embarrassed. You know, you wouldn't even want to be seen outside a therapist's office. And that just reminded me of how we see mental health and, and asking for help in that regard in Nigeria. In the United States, if you're in a crisis and, and you feel like you need help, uh, you can call the number 1-800-662-4357. 1-800-662-HELP. 
is the number. That is National Helpline set up by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And it's open 24 hours a day. It's 365 days a year. It's confidential. It's free. It's available in English and Spanish. It's available for individuals and family members that are facing uh, mental health and or substance abuse disorders. So if you're having one of those moments, please reach out and, and see if you can get some help. Absolutely. And just to show you how, what, what, what are ways we have to go in Nigeria? I don't think there's a number that people can call. I don't think there's such a thing in Nigeria, for example. I was curious as I was thinking about this conversation, I was curious about how other countries deal with mental health issues. And maybe we'll dive into that a little bit uh, on another episode. One of the things I really appreciate about Jenny is her ability to tell a story. And the role of writing is very important for her. It, it helps save her at that one moment. You also are a writer and and a storyteller. And I'm assuming that that the conversation really resonated for you there too. Listening to that piece on, on songwriting, I am a writer. I do love to write. I'd studied journalism, even though my career has, has had nothing to do with storytelling. I think the question you asked her was, well, in her opinion, um, was good writing. And her response was relatability. And I'm going to quote her. She said, when you touch on something that makes another person say, oh my God, I get it. That's me. You've done something special. And that gave me goosebumps, Carter, because that's exactly what I think great storytelling is about. So I always say that I, I talk lots of sense and nonsense on social media, but I do write about things that, and I, and I get that reaction every once in a while, somebody will send me a note to say, my goodness, yes, that thing you talked about, that's exactly how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking. And that's a really powerful thing. That's a really, really powerful thing. And I and I really resonated with that. And I like writing as well. The mystery for me is songwriting. And I understand, you know, just the opportunity to write lyrics and to write music changes the dynamic completely because the music all by itself can make you feel. But the idea of how lyrics get written is just a mystery to me because you look at lyrics without the music and sometimes you look at that and go, that would not be good writing in another context, but it sure works as a song. And I'm just fascinated by that process of telling stories through music and how that really can provoke an emotional reaction in all of us. And one of the things she said was that when she started writing, she couldn't be honest about her feelings, yeah. I guess, especially her, her mental health and, and the stuff that she was going through. So she started telling stories partially based on truth. And she puts it so lyrically. She said you know, her songs start out as stories she'd made up to, in quote, fit the chord. I was like, wow. So she would feel whatever she was feeling, whatever negative feelings she was feeling, and she felt she couldn't be honest about, she would just put words to that music or music to those words. And yeah. I thought, and I never actually thought of, even though when you hear music, you sort of imagine that people are going through certain things as they write about, but to hear her explain this process in the way that she has done sort of has me going back to songs I've heard or lyrics and just wondering if that's what this person was sort of going through at that time. It's a really interesting um, question. Yeah. And uh, I was particularly, she talks about one of the songs um, long, long road. I mean, that really moved me. And she said the realization that 
in the grand scheme of things, your stuff is important, but in the grand scheme of things, everybody's going through something. I mean, I wrote down a lot of stuff (laughs) one that I will share with quite a few people. My favorite was, you know, where you are now isn't necessarily where you are going to be in the future. We're moving along this journey. Give yourself a little grace, a little understanding, a little love. Today isn't great, but there are better days ahead. Yeah. That really, that got me. That got me. I wrote it down uh, and I sent it to a few people, actually. I think we often don't think about that sentiment as we're going through our daily life. It's such a gift Jenny gave us to have a step back and hear that and hear those words. You'd asked her the question about her views on, on people she was fans of. And she talked about the fact that it was important to her that people like the music, but also this idea that people were welcome to this place where they were and that people were appreciated and this reciprocity that the band needed the love and support of the fans as much as, you know, the fans also needed the music. She also talked about the fact that as an artist, you know, even though you don't want to be adored and worshipped in that sort of fan-like manner, but, you know, there is a responsibility that she felt she and the, the band had to fans who were really in need at that time during the pandemic. So it really brought out her humanity, her humility. I think Jenny has a unique ability to connect with people. And I think you see it when you see her in concert. I think you hear it when you listen to her music. There is, she's one of those people that there is something about her that is engaging and charming and real uh, that, that you want to connect with. I started by saying that I felt her humility really came out. And she thanked you, actually. She actually thanked you and said, you know, the music aside and what we're doing here aside, you have used, you're using this platform to bring people together in a really special way. I just thought, you know, this was about her and her music. And she found a way to just wrap this by coming back to that people thing you just talked about. And yeah, her humility really shines through. She is a special person and a friend, and I'm proud to have her as a friend. And so proud of the work that the whole A.B. Grouse Band is doing. Their new album is coming out now on September 24th. So depending on when you're listening to the podcast, it may be out in a couple of days or it may have just come out. But I would encourage you to go to avgrouseband.com. You'll be able to find ways to download it and buy it if you want them to ship you a CD. I think there may be a way for that to happen. But I'm so grateful to Jenny for, for taking the time to talk with us. And I'm grateful to you to introducing me to the band and Jenny. You know, I'll be downloading up the storm and... Knowing all the backstories is going to make it very interesting uh, to listen. And I'm really looking forward to listening to Scenic Routes and, you know, hearing those songs that were written when she was in, you know, in the depths of her depression. So yeah. thank you, Carter, for introducing me to an amazing band. Well, you're welcome. And from a gravel road in Iowa to someplace in the UK to a basement in Centennial, Colorado. <laughs> Cobham in Surrey. It is, is the, it is the beauty of technology that brings us all together and allows us to have these conversations. Uh, next time on the podcast, a conversation with Jim McCorkle. Jim started a nonprofit about 21 years ago to help poor kids and underserved kids get into college and succeed in college. It's been a massive success. We're going to talk a little bit about that nonprofit. He's now stepped away from that nonprofit, 
Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about the work that that nonprofit has done. We'll talk a little bit about the process of getting into college in the United States. A really interesting conversation with an innovative, inspiring leader, uh, Jim McCorkle. The Key and Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter at Key and Kite Pod. The podcast is produced by Carter Hedrick. Music for the Key and Kite is written and performed by the Avery Gross Band. Their album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. The next album, Telltale Heart, will be released on September 24, 2021. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Please join us again next week. <music>